Welcome to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and, and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past present and emerging. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the show today Carolyn Aitken of Whitefield Permaculture. Carolyn's a permaculture teacher and permaculture designer. She's been teaching permaculture at Schumacher College and has spent the last few years developing the Bachelor of Science in Regenerative Food and Farming at the college. 
I welcome you to join us in this conversation as we explore the current state of the food system and discuss the emerging new stories of regenerative food and farming. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Caroline. It's an absolute delight to have you on Sense Making and Changing World. Um, one of the things that we have in common is uh, a love of permaculture and also uh, a focus on looking at the big picture of what's going on in the food system. And also another another thread in common is that we both... Uh, have been in, uh, inspired in some way or other by Patrick Whitefield in permaculture, me in a very minor way. I remember when I was 23, I um, was at Schumacher College and Patrick came in to run a program at Schumacher College about listening to the land and and there was something about what he was doing there just was so grounding after being so much in our head at the college. And I and he was talking about permaculture and it reminded me of something that my dad had talked about all the time when I was a kid. And it really switched me back onto it. And I know that you've spent a lot of time with with Patrick as well. Um, to, yeah. Maybe we just start there. It's like where where and how did you your life enter into the world or connect with the world of permaculture? So a slightly sort of roundabout route really um so I, I originally studied design and, and I was and I was working uh, as a product designer in the UK and decided to go off traveling as many people do and I traveled around Australia and so I did a year in Australia and I did a certain amount of working on farms and that's where I first came across the word permaculture and I can remember by the time I left Australia having a sort of a vague sense of what it was and what it was all about, but but I was really excited by it and I wanted to know more. So I came back to the UK and I and I sort of looked it up and I did some searches and the first person that I found uh, online was with Patrick Patrick Whitefield and I came across his book The Earth Care Manual and I can remember buying buying the book and sort of getting home with it this huge tome of a book you know with the planet Earth on the front. And I just sort of absorbed the whole thing, and was and it, and it completely blew my mind. And, and I think it, I think a lot of people experience this with permaculture that it it just makes so much sense, you know, and it ties lots of things together, and and uh, and it's a real light bulb moment for a lot of us. So I went and studied with Patrick. I did a permaculture design course with him um, at Ragman's Lane Farm, uh, a wonderful permaculture farm um, in Gloucestershire. And we did those two weeks and it was quite a nice story, actually, because um, I at the time was, was working on a farm in Devon and I was sort of doing a bit of work cooking and really kind of scraping a, a living. And Patrick had offered me a really incredible concession so that I could take part in the course. And so while I was there, I helped out lots. And, and in the end, they said, hey, would you like to come back and be the course cook? And so I started cooking for the courses and then Patrick offered me an apprenticeship, a teaching apprenticeship. And that's really how, how it all began. So I was working on the farm and I was learning about permaculture. And um, and it really, everything just sort of fell into place, really. So Patrick and I worked together for uh, a few years, teaching alongside each other and doing land design work together um, until he uh, he handed the business to me when he, when he became unwell. 
And uh, that's why my business is called Whitefield Pan Culture, because I sort of, I kind of took on the baton and mm. it's, it's, uh, carrying on with that work. Mm, wonderful. Wonderful. And so you've carried on that work and now you're in Devon, around yeah. the corner from a place called Schumacher College, and you've been teaching permaculture there into the various food systems courses, which is wonderful. So how what does permaculture look like at Schumacher College and Dartington these days? Is there how does it manifest in that context? Because I know it's quite a different world than, say, my subtropical permaculture garden out here, for example. Yeah. So what you, what, what we have here, I mean, Devon is is such a traditional farming region. You know, it's really famous in the UK for, for its big green rolling hills and the patchwork landscape. And um, and so, so really, a lot of Devon is 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 still very traditional and very rural, um, and it's a lot of grass. So, um, so it's a very wet climate here, and we tend to have quite heavy soils. So, it's not the best place for growing crops. Um, so, you're mostly seeing cows and sheep in the landscape. Um, and Schumacher College is based in um, a, a really old estate. So, in England, a lot of our land is sort of uh, um, formed into these, these historic estates. And the Dartington estate is 1,200 acres um, in a beautiful part of South Devon. And it has a really interesting history, but, but possibly the most interesting part of the history as far as you know, we, we might be concerned is, is when the Elmhurst family took it on um, uh, around 100 years ago, and began using the land for, for um, innovating in, in ecology, in the arts, and in farming. And they did some pretty wacky way out experiments in all kinds of different things. Um, but farming was, was one of the key focuses. And, um, and then uh, 30 years ago, um, yeah, I think we're coming up to the 30th anniversary of Schumacher College, um, Satish Kumar and, and a number of other people formed Schumacher College on the Dartington estate. And again, they, you know, their focus inspired by E.F. Schumacher, who wrote um, Small is Beautiful, was to create a college where, where people could come and learn and really, really sort of think differently about the world and really tackle some of the big philosophical questions of, of uh, life, the universe and everything. And so, um, so they've been running a number of postgraduate courses and lots of short courses there. Um, for the past 30 years. And so the permaculture thread, um, uh, certainly the, the part that I've been involved with uh, with the last few years is um, they, they run a practical six month course called uh, the Practical Residency in Sustainable Horticulture, um, which is a really hands-on course. And the students um, who come onto that program are working in these really diverse demonstration gardens college on campus demonstrating lots of different regenerative food production approaches and actually producing a really huge proportion of the food for the college and so um so the permaculture design course is embedded into that program um, and many of the people who come onto that course will go off and, and work in uh, maybe setting up their own food enterprises or working in other um really quite sort of uh, yeah innovative and cutting edge um, food projects and, and enterprises. 
Mm, that's yeah. so wonderful. It's so fantastic that a place like Schumacher College has really embraced the idea of having a permaculture course as part of it. But but now it's kind of evolving into something quite even more complex than that. And I see um, both in the education side of things that you've been working on, but also in terms of the reimagining of what's happening on, on the estate. So maybe if we could just start with the estate first and then come back to the program that you've been working on. So the um, what what is the big picture vision now for this 1,200 acres? It's just had a new vision really for it um, in the last few years. Can you talk about that maybe? Yes. So, so you know, estates and, and, and um, often have quite an interesting sort of um, – they have interesting journeys and they have different chapters, you know, where there are different people who come in with different visions. So they, you know, they often sort of go through these, these periodic sort of, you know, new manifestations. And um, back in 2012, um, Dartington decided to do a complete review of the way in which they use their land on the estate. Um, and it had at that point sort of become really quite conventional in terms of the kind of farming tenancies and the kind of practices that were happening on the estate. And so, um, so really, the trust felt that it was time to to really examine that. You know, given um, given really the kind of the, the growing um, understanding of the way in which uh, how we farm can uh, can influence the environment and you know and, and our society. And so, um, so they they commissioned the land use review in twenty twelve. They really had a look at what they had on the estate and what they could be doing um, to sort of further those aims of, of sort of benefit, learning and benefiting society as a whole, which is what the estate has always been about. Um, so the land use review led to this whole rethink about the use of the land and, and what they wanted to do was to really diversify the, the kind of land management that was happening and bring more people in to make use of that land. And so since then, that's exactly what's happened. And we now see um, an estate which is which is uh, made up of multiple um, tenancies, lots of different um, and really interesting land-based enterprises, um, yeah, farms, businesses, projects, charities, community interest companies, um, and so, so it's really, really evolved into this fantastic sort of complex ecosystem of, of, um, of activity. And um, so what's happening now is that, that really as a result of that, people started to come to Dartington to see what was happening and to, to you know, engage with these projects. And, and people started coming from all over the world to see what was happening on the estate. And so that really led Schumacher College to think, hang on a minute, you know, we need to be maybe um, renewing our focus on, on food in the ecosystem. Um, and so that's led the college to, to start developing more food and farming related programmes because, of course, it, it just, you know, it works so beautifully with what's happening in the estate. So, um, so there, there are more food and farming related um, short courses and we now have um, a BSc, the first undergraduate program at Schumacher College, due to open in September, which is a BSc in regenerative food and farming, which is what I've been really focusing on in the last uh, two to three years. And 
We have an MSC Regenerative Food and Farming Enterprise, which is due to open in January. And then coming up soon will be an MA in Sustainable Food Systems. So really, we're just kind of, uh, we're, we're developing, we're, we're sort of bringing together everything that's already happening. And we're really optimising that to, to kind of uh, communicate these ideas in, in the most effective way. Um, and I can certainly talk more about what led to the, the undergraduate programme. Yeah, no, I'd love to hear more about uh, where where that came from and, and what are the sort of key issues that you're focusing on there? Because I know that it's going to be something that will attract people from around the world to be part of this. So obviously it has sort of that big picture global perspective, but also something that brings people into sort of very local as well. So what how how is it what yeah where did it come from and what are some of the key elements that you've woven into that? Yeah so so we really started with the big picture with this. Um, back in 2017 I was commissioned by the head of college to to do a study which we called the food culture study. And this was triggered by not only what was happening on the estate, but also we started to see really large international organisations and, and national governments uh, really beginning to strongly advocate a widespread transition towards agroecological systems. And so for, for the Permese listening, you know, ag agroecology is very much, uh, it, it's, it's informed by the principles of ecology in very much the same way as permaculture is. And it's just very specifically focused on agriculture and rural communities, but it's as much a social movement as it is an environmental movement because it's really looking at food justice and food sovereignty as, as well as the environmental, uh, you know, harmonious environmental uh, food production. So um, so this study was, was a fantastic way to kind of really get out and talk to, to all sorts of different groups and stakeholders about what they felt was needed from educators like Schumacher College in order to, to aid this transition. So I went out and I spoke to uh, I spoke to farmers and growers and food business people, and I spoke to policymakers, change makers, and uh, educators, and, and all sorts of different groups within within the sector. And I asked them what they felt was needed. And we put all of that into, you know, and I sort of uh, evaluated all of that vast body of information. And um, alongside that, I looked at what is currently available in terms of training, you know, because we have, you know, we have this huge advocacy for agroecology and the transition. And what, what I found certainly in the UK, and I did look a little bit further afield as well and found that actually there isn't really substantial training in order for, for people to respond to those calls. Mm -hmm. So so in the UK, they, there were some huge gaps that I identified. So, so having identified what the sector felt was needed and what was actually available, then we just kind of said, okay, well, let's see how we can fill those gaps. And as a higher education institution, um, the, the obvious route was to create a really good comprehensive higher education programme which is why, you know, in this instance, it was an undergraduate programme. And we realised that, that, you know, other large um, agricultural universities have these really substantial degree programmes for people wanting to go into farming, you know, whether that's 
straight agricultural, farm business management, or whatever it might be. And there was no agroecological equivalent to that. And what's been really fascinating in creating this program and responding directly to what, what we were told was needed is that we realise, of course, that, that, that farming doesn't exist in isolation. It's so completely integrated with society and the environment. And, um, and, and what I found really inspiring when I did this research, and I was already aware of this incredible movement that was, that was growing in the UK, was, was finding the people who have made their, their agroecological food and farming enterprises work really kind of against all the odds. And so this led me to these incredible innovators. And so, so in the UK over the last few years, um, we've had our particular situation here has been under the common agricultural policies in Europe, um, farms under a certain size, so farms under five hectares, weren't eligible for any of the farming subsidies. Um, and, and so the situation with farming subsidies in the UK is that it generally makes up about half of the whole farm income. So it's a really big chance. It's huge. Huge. Yeah. So, so we have with a situation where it is that a lot of our farmers are entirely dependent upon those subsidies. And the reason they're dependent is because we've had this increasing situation where the value of food has, has remained static or in fact dropped. So their farm gate prices are staying the same or dropping. The cost of their inputs and their overheads, of course, are always creeping up. They've reached peak efficacy for nitrogen fertilizers. You know, then it's not they can't throw any more on to get any more yield now. That's not happening anymore. You have pesticide resistance in, in pests and, and diseases. And so really they've got nowhere to go. And of course, a lot of the natural capital has been lost through soil erosion, et cetera. So, so we have this really very vulnerable situation um, in conventional farming. Meanwhile, we have these, these small farms who have not been eligible for that support and therefore haven't developed that dependency, but rather have developed innovative ways of surviving. And so while our farm numbers, you know, we've been losing farms hand over fist since 2005, and yet we've been gaining small farms, slowly, slowly, gradually, gradually. So we have these small food and farming enterprises who have gone, okay, we don't have subsidies, we can't compete with the big farms in terms of selling on the commodity market. So we're going to find direct routes to our local market. So they've developed things like uh, local box schemes, community-supported agriculture schemes, where they get a buy-in from their community, which gives them that sense of that financial security to keep going year on year. Um, they have uh, formed food hubs, food cooperatives, um, you know, all of these ways in which they can sell directly to their local community. Um, and get a much bigger proportion of food pound. So, so if a farmer sells directly to a supermarket, they tend to receive a, around eight pence of the food pound. Whereas if they're selling directly to their community, you know, they're getting more like the, the sort of the complete opposite of that, more like 90, 92p of the food pound. Yeah, let's just say that again, just so that it was clear, because sometimes you're the the sound is going out of it. And I don't know if people heard that that was eight p in the pound 
that traditional farming is getting and that's yeah. flipped for that's that's huge yeah. and i and i wonder too i wonder about the ages of farmers so here in australia sort of the general age of a typical farmer a typical farming system is around retirement age Whereas when we look at the the sort of the new farms, these regenerative farms that are coming up, they're typically a new generation of farmers coming through. Is that is that being seen in your context as well? Absolutely, and I believe it's the same picture in many of the you know much of the global north. So so yes, the the, the reason that the average age of the farmer is going up, and in, in the UK, I often see from fifty eight fifty nine as the average age. And this is because we have a big issue with family farm succession, which is the younger generations wanting to take on and continue the family farm business. And who can blame them? You know, the, the farmers have had a really hard time in recent years, you know, with exactly that picture that I described. Um, and so the people that with the young people that we're seeing coming into farming tend to be coming into this, this very new and different kind of farming. And often they're not from farming backgrounds at all. Mm. Many are young career changers, actually, who may have studied something well, a bit like me. You know, I studied design and I ended up farming, you know. But we're being drawn to it because it's it's one of the rare good news stories, I think, is a big part of it. You know, there's, there's so many, there are so many bad news stories, you know, in the world and, and at the moment. And farming... Um, it is such a good news story. You know, if we farm in the right way, we can solve many of those really big problems with the food, you know, food inequality, environmental degradation, um, you know, food waste, food miles, all of these different issues, you know. And so, so people kind of are drawn into something that feels like a meaningful livelihood. And certainly the small farm movement that's been developing here in the last half uh, 10, 15 years, it's so thriving and it's so positive and a really supportive network. We have networks like the Land Workers Alliance, for example, who are part of the Global Lavia Campesina Network. Um, and they have these fantastic networking events. They're really supportive. They offer training and advice. And, um, and they're also lobbying um, the government um, on um, positive policy changes. Wow. So, so it's a really exciting thing to be a part of. I wanted to ask you about that with the subsidies. I mean, if, if 50% of farmers' income is subsidies and and kind of hitting a wall and the price that farmers are getting is so low, is there shift happening at that subsidy level? Is, that, is there some turnaround that's taking place in response to this? What are you seeing happening yeah, so, so gosh, it's a really interesting time here in the UK for agriculture policy. As you know, we've left the European Union. And so we've had the first chance in 50 years to rewrite our agriculture policy. And it's been, it's been people have been very engaged with that. Um, it's such an opportunity. And, um, and so where we're at with that now is that the, the government have... Um, they have announced, um, you know, that we have an agriculture act, which came about as a result of, you know, the public consultation and the, the little ping pong that happens here between the Commons and the Lords to get, you know, to get bills through. And we we have the act, but we are still in, with 
uh, DEFRA, who's the, the um, Department for uh, uh, Environment and Food here, um, are still piloting and trialling the new subsidy scheme. So um, it will take a while to transition out of the, um, uh, the common agricultural policy subsidies into these new subsidies. And so the sort of the bad news at the moment is that there's a lot of uncertainty because we farmers don't yet know exactly what, what they'll be eligible for and what they might have to do in order to be eligible. Um, but the good news is that the, the new farming subsidies are very heavily based upon environmental land management. So they are looking to the, the sort of tagline is public money for public goods. So they've really, the government have really taken on board this idea of, um, uh, not really a term I like to use, but natural capital, the importance of natural capital and, and sort of, you know, that, that actually that those th things like biodiversity and carbon sequestration and flood mitigation and, and heritage, you know, that they are uh, our public assets, you know, and so um, so that's really great. Um, it would be nice to see more support for um, whole farm systems and agroecological approaches, because I think the concern is that that um, if we continue to sort of put different types of land management into separate silos, we're not encouraging people to kind of really integrate those different mm -hmm. components and, and get the incredible multiple benefits that you get from that integration. I wonder too whether there's... Um the support for those small farmers in this new policy that yeah. we don't know yet is the answer. So so there have they have made, you know, they have been saying, you know, that the 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 rhetoric has been very positive. They want these these subsidies to be available for all farmers. Um that I think the, the there's a little bit of nervousness around this at the moment because um the, certainly, to begin with, it will only be the recipients of the former scheme uh, who will actually be eligible for the new scheme. And they they are saying that that you know they will gradually bring more and more people in. And we just have to you know I think any time where there is new policy being formed and there's an opportunity for the public engagement in forming that policy, we we have to be diligent. And we have to keep engaging with it and just keep on telling them what we want. Yeah, yeah. So in your research that you've done around the, um, around, I don't know how far you looked, but um, what were some of those, you've talked about good news stories. I'm just wondering, what are some of those really interesting type of food systems examples that you've seen that highlight this new paradigm of of the food systems and and just make you feel really hopeful. Yeah, so so we're lucky we've got quite a few on our doorstep here um, in Dartington. So so you know we talked about the, the some of the big issues of the food system and and um, two of those being food equality and also waste. And there's a brilliant project here at Dartington called Food in Community a little community interest company who um, who gather up food waste from, from various different retailers and service providers and they redistribute that food waste to people um, in food poverty in the local area. And I don't know, it may be, it may be 
surprising for, for some listeners to hear that in the UK we have a real issue with food poverty um, and food banks are being drawn upon in a way that they haven't been for a very long time. And so food and community, not only do they redistribute the food waste, so that's kind of, you know, that's solving two, two issues in, in one hit, but also they realise that obviously there are these bigger systemic issues underlying all of this. And so they also train people up. Um, they run little courses and community building events. So they're bringing communities together, teaching people about how to source good food, how to cook with it, you know, how to eat healthily. Um, so really, really inspiring. Wonderful. Project. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, others around... Um... You mentioned, you know, food uh, food cooperatives in CSAs and farmers, well, there's farmers markets as well. Like, how how much has that spread throughout the UK? I remember way back in 1992 being seeing the emergence of some of the first farmers markets around. I think it was around Bristol area, and and it just seems like it just it's just spread so amazingly. Yeah. So, is that something that you see has really landed in the kind of the food culture where you are or was it, or was it still in pockets yeah no it really has you know and and when those when because I remember the first farmers markets you know I remember being at art college and and it being quite a novel thing you know and it was certainly quite a kind of um it was definitely it, it was quite a middle class thing to be honest at the time it was really for, for more affluent people and so I went to art college in, in Winchester which is this beautiful historic city and, and it was um and it was all very um uh um middle class and, and lovely and, and gourmet <laughs> um but it's evolved since then. And, and I think that, you know, there may still be a little bit of an association with those former days of the mm. farmer's market. But I think what's changed is, um, you know, small farmers starting up things like these direct sales models of, of um, vegetable box schemes, meat box schemes, um, and often um, having a pickup service at local farmer's markets. And and because these consumers, sorry, these producers are selling directly to their consumers, they are able to keep their food at a, at a very affordable price for people. And of course, you still, you know, you still have your kind of your high end products. And, but a, but a lot of producers, I think, feel that um, if they they can offer their food at an affordable price, then then they do. Um, so I would say that, that pretty pretty much you know every every town and city in the land now has some kind of um, uh, farmers farmers market or, or producer hub um, or box scheme available. So Wonderful. Was, I mean that's quite a massive shift in a short period of time, really, hasn't it? It's kind of been embraced so much, and it's really lovely too to hear that it's shifted. So, you know, you, you started talking about um, the food and community addressing food poverty and then, you know, farmer's market being sort of a more of a, you know, a gourmet end of, of the local food system. But really filling in the gaps has been something that I've been really interested in over the years too, that it's, that it's, it's actually just becomes really accessible and that it's, that it's real food for everyday people and that, that, you know, we find ways that, you know, good food is just a, a basic human right, not a privilege. And uh, so it's great to hear that, you know, that's starting to, to happen with, with so many things. And I, 
And I wonder too whether whether you're seeing any um, permaculture farms that are integrating with these. Are, are there any kind of really interesting permaculture farms that you've seen marketing their produce in this way and, and being a really successful example of of a local food system? Absolutely. I mean, there's again, luckily, there's one right on our doorstep here at Dartington. Um, so. So um, the Apricot Centre, um, which runs from Huxham's Cross Farm, Huxham's Cross Farm, uh, which is a, a biodynamic permaculture farm, um, and really diverse, um, fantastic diverse integrated permaculture systems. They've got vegetables. They they do chickens and eggs. They have soft fruit and they have top fruit, and they also do grains. Mm-hmm. Um, so very diverse. Um, and they run a box scheme and they sell out of various shops here as well. But they, they're they very collaborative. And so so they're engaging a lot with the community. Mm. There's also a care farm element of their, their work as well. They do some therapeutic stuff. So, mm. so very engaged in community. Um, but they're working with other enterprises um, on the estate in lots of different ways. Um, one of my favourite projects is um, the Dartington Mill, which is a collaboration between Huxon's Cross Farm Old Parsonage Farm, which is the, the biggest farm here on the estate, um, and an incredible artisan baker called the Almond Seek, which is in Dartington, and wow. bakes the most incredible bread. And so they, they've been collaborating on um, growing um, population grains and trying to sort of develop land races. Um, and uh, because, as I said earlier, Devon is not, it's not known for its grain growing <laughs> potential. So it's really important that we develop those those. Mm. land races that work here in this climate and this soil and so they've um they've been doing uh, growing the grain processing it here at dartington and then um so milling it and then uh selling it as bags of flour to the community um locally and then also having it baked into these wonderful products mm. and i think that's something that i remember schumacher being schumacher college being really strong about is this this immersion in in food that every day at the college you know for particularly for the you know the residential programs that there's some way of being involved in the harvesting and the cooking and and then sharing the meals together and that that the whole conversation around food and particularly you know Satish talking about a loaf of bread, you know, a loaf of bread just not being a loaf of bread. There's so much more to it. And so the fact that, you know, you now have local bakeries like this, it's phenomenal. I know Schumacher has been making their own bread, but maybe not from such incredible local grain. I mean, if that can be coming right from the from from the estate, that's that's amazing. And what a brilliant thing to be able to bring in students in this this new program to be able to be studying a bachelor's, but then being immersed in all of these programs. So I, I think I heard you mention, um, maybe it was in another conversation that we had, that students who do this program will also have a chance to kind of meet all these different, um, which just, will they get a chance to go out and work with them or how, how does that kind of learning pathway work? Mm, so, well, absolutely they will. So, so we the, the sort of the threads of the program, the really strong threads, were um, obviously the regenerative food production, so the, the kind of the real cutting edge, edge technologies and methodologies for regenerative agriculture. 
Um, then the business skills. So this was something that obviously often people who are drawn to a land-based livelihood don't come from a business background necessarily or, or, or have those skills. So that was something key. Also, a, a basic understanding of biosciences and sort of agro, agroecological sciences was key because, of course, ecology underpins all of that practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and then sort of, you know, the, the sort of... Um, the bigger picture contextual stuff, you know, like uh, understanding the food system and how it works and, and really being able to sort of critically analyse um, uh, different approaches to, to food and farming. Um, and so so what we wanted to do was to, to give people this really rounded package of knowledge and understanding and practical skills so that when they graduate, they're, they're ready, they're ready to go. But we knew that we needed to reference real life and real practice as often as possible. So in pretty much every module on the course, um, they will be coming into contact with um, uh, lecturers coming in, uh, field trips, field work, case studies of different um, projects and enterprises, um, tours and visits, so that we can really tap into all of this incredible stuff that's happening and, and show the students these, kind of, these incredibly inspiring examples of how people have made things work. And really made them work, and um, you know, and to show the benefits of collaboration, like you know, allow students to learn from from all of this incredible learning that's gone on in these last 15, 20 years out there in the field uh, of how how to uh, how to engage with your community and and find innovative routes to market. So, so yes, they will be. I mean, you know, what what a context to run this course in. Fantastic. I'm just imagining all these people who are coming to that and then going out. And I know that some of them will be from overseas. But I wonder how does how does it work where you are for people who are not from a land based community who want to become farmers? If you if you're not having the land handed down through the generations, how hard is it now to access a piece of land? And is it actually creating an innovation in the way that people work together to access the land? What, what's your what's your noticings there? Yeah. So so yeah, absolutely. Good observation. It's a, it's um it's another key area of, of innovation. So yeah, we we you know in the UK. Um, we do have an issue with access to land. And this partly to do with the way that the land is owned here. Um, but it's also to do with land prices having been pushed up, pushed up over the years because of the common agricultural policy, actually, which paid farmers by area for the land that they owned and farmed. So that that has exaggerated the issue somewhat. But again, you know, it's led to innovation. So, so there are all sorts of organisations who... Um, who help young people, new entrants to farming, in gaining access to land. There's the Ecological Land Cooperative, which creates land trusts and then and then really sort of fair tenancy for people. There are farm start organisations, increasing um, incubators um, for, for new entrants. And it's something that we are planning to develop here on the estate as well. There's one thing that we are rich in is land. And... Um, so we are, you know, we'll be looking into having incubator plots as well to kind of springboard people into a better position uh, from which to start. Fantastic. Plots. Can you talk a little bit more about farmland trusts? Because I think this is something that's really very interesting and it doesn't really exist 
in Australia. And I think it's something that would be a, a wonderful thing to do because it's kind of a similar situation here where, you know, unless you're handed down farmland from older generations, the prices of land in Australia have just gone horrendously high as well. And so there's lots of different ways that people are starting to, to approach accessing land. But one of them I think that really holds a lot of potential is this notion of a farmland trust. We have bushland trusts. Mm. Cities are buying up bushland because they're valuing the uh, well, the importance of having bushland in and around cities. And so, you know, one of the things that I've been talking with with various councils is, well, let's have a look at the remnant farmland in and around our cities um, because, you know, here in Australia we only really have cities and then cities and suburbs and then, you know, <laughs> little bits. It's not like this mosaic of towns and, and uh, villages everywhere. So looking at what's around the city and thinking, well, how can we as a collective, as a, as a commons, um, protect these farm areas and put them into farmland trusts and then create some kind of um, like a, a some sort of covenant on the top that means that they're done they're farmed regeneratively and uh, there could be you know ecology of systems that happen there. So this is the sort of ideas that are bubbling up, but we don't really have anything that's really landed. And I'd love to hear some examples or ideas or things that are bubbling up in your part of the world? Yes, there, there are a number of different sort of approaches to this, really. And, and again, we've got an interesting history of that because it used to be that we had um, uh, council-owned farms, county farms here, and gradually, unfortunately, um, a lot of those have been sold off over the years. So there's a renewed focus on kind of, you know, pushing for, for county farms to come back because that's always been a really great way for, for new entrants uh, without sort of you know uh, private um, funds to access farming to get into farming, so that's that's one thing. Um, if if you know that's never been um, a thing, <laughs> you know where you are, then um, community land trust and um, and uh, sort of charitable land trust are another another thing to look at. And so essentially, that is um, raising money um, from stakeholders. Um, to buy the piece of land and then to, uh, to, to give just very fair and equitable um, leases on those lands and, and um, the land will be held in trust for, for a, um, you know, a, a very long period of time to give security to, to those tenants. Um, another interesting thing that's happening here because, you know, because so much of our land is, is owned by relatively few people, um, and so there's been interesting conversations going on with, with large landowners in recent times. And, and these ideas about um, farm share agreements, um, which can help small enterprises get going by, by sort of um, having little or, or sort of peppercorn rent, uh, but sort of paying a little bit of um, their profit to the landowner. And then the landowner is then invested in their success. Um, and also, uh, it's, it's sometimes it's just a little bit of a, a mindset change, actually, because landowners are used to renting out large tenancies, and often they're not hugely, you know, historically haven't been hugely interested in sort of renting out a five-acre parcel, because you know, while it's a, it's a bit, you know, 
annoying to have to fence off as far as like a corner of the field, you know. So, so there's a there's a kind of a mindset change here as, as landowners kind of thinking, well, okay, maybe I could, maybe I could sort of section off a few areas of field and, and let those out to small enterprises. Hmm. Um, so I think a lot, as with many things, I think it's often multiple solutions. Yeah. You have a, a what about the history of the commons over there and whether there's still are there still any commons in existence? That and how does that work in terms of accessing that land for these types of initiatives? Yeah, so so the commons are generally um, uh, well. I mean, there's different different definitions of the word for commons, um, but we do still have common pieces of land which are um, which are um, essentially um, forever the local um, farming community have access rights to using that land. So it's usually fairly low-grade grazing land that very specific um, uh, members of the local community are allowed to graze their, their animals on for, you know, different periods of time. So, so they, um, you know, they'll each have their number of days that they're allowed to take their animals on. So, so for example, Dartmoor, where I live, um, uh, much of Dartmoor is a commons, and there are grazers who, um, for generations of their family, have, uh, have right to graze their cattle on Dartmoor. So who manages the, the commons and says who can have it and who can't have it, and how do you shift those intergenerational things to maybe have different things happening there? Or is it just simply that they are marginal lands and that's really all that can happen? Yeah, I, to, to be honest, I don't know. It's not it's not my area of great specialism, but there's been a lot of work done on that in, in recent years. And um, and I think if you're interested in, in looking at land ownership in the UK specifically, I, I would certainly point people towards Guy Shrubsoy, who wrote a fantastic book called Who Owns England and has a website full of fascinating information. Can you just say that again? I didn't quite catch the the, yeah, the name of the book or the author. Yeah. Okay, so Guy Shrubsole, which is a great name, mm-hmm. and the book was Who Owns England. Ah, okay, Who Owns England, right. So, so that's really interesting, but also, um, again, the Land Workers Alliance of, of um done a lot of work on, on land rights and land access. Mm, wonderful. Um, yeah. So what are the sort of books and films or uh, things that are inspiring you at the moment? What what's um what are you reading? Oh my goodness. Well um I've actually I mean there are always so many which is stack next to my bed which I'm trying to get to. Um, at the moment, actually, I've been reading um, uh, a number of books published by Chelsea Green, who are one of our partners at, at Dartington, because I've been interviewing some of their authors um, who have written food and farming related books. And so I've had the treat of having these wonderful books coming through my door that I, that I need to read. Um, and uh, one of those I particularly enjoyed was um, A Small Farm Feature by mm. Chris Mage. Uh, which is fascinating because really, uh, so Chris uh, originally was um, an anthropologist, a social scientist, and this really comes through in the book. It's so well researched and 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 all laid out. And and he he became a farmer, and uh, um, very much 
a permaculture farmer. And he was really interested in, in this idea. Um, you know, a big part of the philosophy in permaculture really is that we can, you know, the question of can, can permaculture feed the world? Well, the answer is actually, it kind of is feeding about 70% of the world right now. <laughs> because that's what the way in which, you know, the majority of, of the world's people are fed is by these small-scale, diverse, integrated farming systems. And so Chris was really interested in looking at, well, what would what would happen? How would it look if we in the global north changed the way that we produce food in that way? Um, and so he really explores, you know, the physical, the practical, the spiritual, you know, the, the social elements of that and, and lays out this picture of the future in which we we are fed by small farms mm-hmm. um so that's fascinating mm. um and i'm at the moment i'm reading um farming on the wild side by nancy and john hayden which is lovely an inspiring story of the way in which they transitioned uh to agroecology on their farm in vermont mm. um and so you just see one of those books where you have these wonderful sort of the stark picture of this very conventional farm, which is so, you know, sort of ecological desert, really, your standard classic monoculture. Um, and then gradually, you know, they, they, they add in all these components and they tie them together. And you see the beautiful diversification of the farm over mm, time. Wonderful. Oh, thank you for sharing those examples. I wonder yeah, too whether, whether um, in terms of the listeners, what are some of the things that you would like to maybe let them know about how they can get in touch with you about the different programs that you've talked about, but also some things that you'd like to maybe encourage them to kind of dive in and have a look more at possibly. Yeah, absolutely. So, um you can you can have a look at my website, which is uh, whitefieldpermaculture.co.uk, and that uh, that has um, all sorts of stuff on it, but also information about the courses and the land design things that I do. Um, you can check out the Schumacher College website, uh, which is schumachercollege.org.uk, and there you'll find all the information about the the BSC Regenerative Food and Farming. Um, which you have all the modules laid out and you'll get a real picture of the course. And if you want to know more about that course, then we're doing these uh, live chats events. So again, have a look at the the college website and also um, the Dartington website, which is dartington.org. And um, you'll find the dates for the live chats where you can actually come and talk to me online and I'll talk more about the content of the course and answer any questions. We actually have... um, uh, a virtual open evening, which is tomorrow evening as well. So you can find links to that on all of our Facebook pages, the Schumacher College, Dartington Trust, and uh, my Facebook pages as well. Um, and so do come and have a look if you want to know more about the college and, and what it's like and the different courses that are available. But in terms of, of, of how people can get involved, I think I think one of the most important and most empowering things that, that we can do is to engage with our local food producers and engage with our, our, our local community in, in doing that. You know, the way that we spend our food pound is really powerful, you know. And so if we were to, you know, if we can grow any of our own food, again, it may seem like a really small thing, but it's 
a big impact if lots of us are doing it. And then when we when we go out and we engage with our local producers and we and we have a form a relationship with them, um, it's a really powerful thing. So I, I think, and it's a really positive thing too. It's, it's, you know. Yeah, I mean the the um, the multiple benefits of it and the the ripple effects of it are quite profound. Um, you know, it's just a, in a way, it's kind of a beginning point, isn't it? When you start to talk about the food system, you can talk about everything from there. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I focused on on permaculture and food because you can look at you can look at health, you can look at education, you can look at you know all different sorts of you know ecological restoration and local economy and all of these things together through the focus on on um, what we do with food so it's it's a wonderful program and and um you know everything that you've been researching and uh, pulling together thank you so much for for taking the time to describe that to us and to to share that i hope that many of the listeners might um follow through and and uh check out what's going on over at schumacher college because even though you know you may or may not be able to partake in the 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 long course there's always short courses that are there as well and all sorts of things that are going on um, within this world and and yeah like you're saying find a way to uh, yeah support your local grower and your local community and and maybe consider you know the whole idea of maybe you could be a farmer too there's someone else who I just interviewed the other week who used to be a, a builder and it took on one acre piece of farm and uh, it left the city and now makes his entire living for his family from this one acre and with 11 streams of income. And it's just a fascinating story that that it's a shift in our narrative thinking that, you know, the farmers are sort of out there and they have big plots and they don't really, you know, it's this distant thing, you know, particularly for urban dwellers and uh you know this whole idea that we could actually shift and change and become more more totally engaged in our food system uh so oh look it's just wonderful and i'm so glad to hear the stories about how it's 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 just taken off in every single community you know every single town around around the uk i would i hope that it does that here in australia as well yeah, yeah. So thank you for your time. It's been lovely to chat with you and see you again. And um, yeah, I hope I hope to stay in touch and talk more about all the different work that we collectively do in all our different parts of the world. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Morag. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Head on over to my YouTube channel, the link's below, and then you'll be able to watch this conversation, but also make sure that you subscribe because that way you'll be notified of all new films that come out. And also you'll get notified of all the new, all the new interviews and conversations that come out. So thanks again for joining us. Have a great week and I'll see you next time.